The reading is taken from Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 to 22, and can be found on page 501 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bitsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the, commends, the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shetha, 
Admafa, Tarshish, Mears, Marsena, and Memucan. The seven nobles of Persia and Media had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say... King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian Median women of the nobility who have heard about the Queen's conduct will respond to the King's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sylvia, thank you very much uh, for reading that uh, chapter to us. Uh, can I also say a happy new year to everyone, or maybe a new decade? I'll see Richard's year and raise you a decade. Uh, it's, uh, I hope you all had a good Christmas and everything. We are going to spend uh, a few moments uh, looking at Esther 1. So shall we pray uh, as we come to this? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. Uh, and Lord, as we read it and uh, hear it this morning... Uh, Lord, may we see you through it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, here we are, first Sunday of January, 
Uh, I don't know if you've gone back to work or study yet, or if that's uh, just about to happen. Don't know what, how you find January. Uh, some people, it's you know one of the most difficult months. I was going to say like we normally expect the cold winter's mornings, but we don't seem to have got those yet. Uh, so you know maybe we'll be spared. But a few weeks time, it is Blue Monday, uh, the, which is apparently the the day in the year where people feel their lowest. Uh, you know we've gone past all the excitement of Christmas, uh, and now we're in the normality of life. And I just want you to think about that place uh, of normality for you for a moment. Where do you spend uh, Monday to Saturday? Is it in, in an office, uh, in a place of study, in a home? Just think about that, that place, uh, where it is for the moment. And how often is God mentioned there? Uh, in my office, uh, it's a bit different now, uh, working here, but in my office where I used to work, I think the only time God was mentioned was as a swear word. How often is God mentioned in the Monday to Saturday? We're reminded each Sunday uh, as we come here of him. But where is he Monday to Saturday? In that normality of life, in the everyday of life, where is God? Well, that's the question that the book of Esther seeks to answer. Where is God in the everyday? Where is God in that? Specifically, it's answering, how is God working to preserve and protect his people? As Sylvia uh, was reading, I'm sure you uh, picked up on the great feasts uh, that come in Esther 1, the refusal of Queen Vashti, the uh, ridiculous law that uh, King Xerxes uh, proclaims. This uh, kind of immorality, uh, get that right word, immorality, that kind of runs throughout the book uh, of Esther, is there. And we'll have to touch on some of those things as we go through. Uh, And yet, I don't think that that is primarily what the writer of Esther is concerned about. In many ways, uh, they don't pronounce any judgment on them. We know they are bad. But you see, for all the drinking... All the sex, all the angry decisions, all the corporal punishment, the compromising, the breaking of Old Testament laws, all those things that run throughout the book, there's a greater focus to the book of Esther. And yet it's not in your face. It's only there in the background. So if you've never read uh, the book of Esther before, the most surprising thing about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned once. It's in the Bible, but God is not mentioned once. There's no speaking from God. There's no uh, great act of power. His name is not even in the entire book. It kind of feels like maybe what our lives feel like uh, in, on a Wednesday afternoon in the office as we get up on a cold winter's morning God doesn't seem to speak. His name is not mentioned. It's like he's not there. And yet, as we read through the story of Esther over the next few weeks, and I'd encourage you to do it. In fact, do it this week. Uh, It's a a fascinating read. You can read through the whole book. It doesn't take uh, very long. You can do it in a lunch break or something. Uh, read it. It's a, it's a fascinating story. And as you read it, you'll see that there's these no, uh, none of these great acts of God or God speaking. But what you'll also see is that there are far too many events that join together, far too many uh, coincidences, far too many reversals of fortune to think anything other 
then God is controlling everything that happens here. That's why we've called uh, this series The Silent Sovereignty of God. We don't hear his voice, but he is there. Sovereignly controlling uh, everything. And it's there right in this first chapter. In the foreground, uh, we've got King Xerxes. Uh, He's uh, displaying his power. He is trying to keep his power. But in the background, there's something far, someone far more powerful in full control. So let's let's take a look at uh, Esther 1. Uh, and we'll look, first of all, at King Xerxes and how he displays uh, his power in verses 1 to 8. King Xerxes displaying power. Look at verse 1. This is what happens during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So the writer starts Esther placing us at a clear point uh, in history. Xerxes is ruling over the Persian Empire. It's the largest of the empires uh, in the ancient world. Uh, and this point is basically its apex uh, uh, of its power and prominence. 127 provinces. This is a big, powerful empire with a big, powerful ruler. Xerxes in, in Greek is in Greek, means ruling over heroes. He had risen to to power, having inherited the empire from his father, Darius I, without anyone questioning his authority. Worldly speaking, this is a guy you look at, uh, and at this point in history, he has everything. Now compare that to God's people, on the other hand. This is the point in their history long after their high point, uh, uh, King David, after the, uh, all the problems of the kingdom splitting in two, they are in exile. They've been taken to exile by the Babylonians. The Babylonians have been taken over by the Persians. And so here they are in about the year 483 BC in a foreign land under foreign rule and probably wondering... Where is God in this? Exactly, though, doesn't worry about such things. Uh, if we look in verse 3 and 4, what he's concerned about is showing off his wealth. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces for presence. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. According to a, a, a study, uh, sorry, a survey, it's an American YouGov poll uh, that I saw this week. The top New Year's resolutions for 2020, when people asked, were exercise more, save money, eat more healthy, and lose weight. Now, I don't think King Xerxes is following any of those uh, as he begins his third year of his reign. He throws this six-month banquet. All the important people of the empire are there. As verse 4 says, he displays his vast wealth, his splendor, his glory. If you were there, there was no doubt who was the man. There was no doubt who had it all. And he carefully brings in all these important uh, noble people. I think so that he can uh, set off, if you know the history of Persia, on his next great crusade. 
his next great display of power. Uh, and then, after six months of that huge party, uh, just to make sure we get the idea, the writer makes sure uh, that we uh, see that he then throws another party. Seven days from the, uh, for all the people in the city, from the least to the greatest. And see how it's described in verses 5 to 8. It has the finest decorations, the finest tableware, wine of which there was no limits. Uh, all the stewards uh, gave everyone as much as they wanted, verse 8. This is a lavish party. This is a guy who's got it all. He can stand there, he can show off his money, his glamour, his power, his wealth. It's over the top, and deliberately so. He's the guy with the power, he's the guy controlling it all. And he wants you to see it. At least he thinks he's the guy with all the power and all the control. But verses 9 to 12, Shea King Xerxes losing power. See, Xerxes have this uh, beautiful queen, Vashti. She's also throwing a party there in verse 9 for the women. Uh, and while that party is in full swing, some of the, uh, the eunuchs uh, from the king arrive uh, to get her. Uh, the king, who, let's face it, is completely wasted, uh, is, uh, has called her to bring her in as his trophy wife to show off Uh, all the beauty to all the people present. But verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's commands, Queen Vashti refused to come. I'm not told why Queen Vashti uh, refused to come. Uh, There could be a whole uh, host of reasons. Commentators kind of try and speculate a bit. Was she... uh, being stubborn? Did she know the sexual degradation that would have uh, come her way uh, if she went and so um, decided not to go? The fact is we don't know for sure. And I think that's one of the the reasons why uh, I think the the book of Esther isn't primarily talking about the kind of moral issues that go on. You see, it doesn't matter why she didn't come. The fact is she didn't come. And that sparks off a whole chain of events they'll eventually lead to God's people being preserved and protected. But we'll see that uh, as we go through. See, the other thing that uh, this shows, that Queen Vashti refusing to come, is it shows that the most powerful person over the most powerful uh, empire, with all these great displays uh, of wealth uh, and might, is not actually in control of everything. He thought he'd call his wife and she would come running, but she makes her own decision. And suddenly, there's that chink in the armour of the control of the great king. You see, the most powerful people in the world can never have full control. You may look at the, the CEO of your company and think, that he controls it all. You may look at uh, King Jong-un and think uh, he's controlling all of North Korea. You may look at the news at the moment and see President Trump and the supreme leader uh, of Iran uh, and think, who's going to end up with the control? But in all the cases, none of them have full control. No human can have complete control. We see that. Uh, here. And in fact, the wisest leaders know that they can't have complete control, but Xerxes isn't a, isn't a wise leader. 
He doesn't learn the lesson. In fact, instead, he attempts to regain his control and power. So, uh, verses 13 to 22, uh, King Xerxes regaining power. Now, presumably at this point, they're nursing some pretty sore heads. Uh, so the, uh, and at that point, the king calls together all the wise uh, and noble, his closest allies, um, so that he can find out what to be done. Uh, look at verse 15. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She, must not, uh, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Now, at this point, these wise men are a bit worried. They've, you know, what the queen has done, well, that's going to become known uh, around the kingdom. And if a queen can disobey the king, then what's going to stop our wives disobeying us? This is going to cause massive problems. So, so one of them comes up with this, this great idea, verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this, his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Great idea, I think. Yeah, this will sort all the problems out. So the king uh, issues a decree in every part of his kingdom. Effectively saying the husbands rule over their wives. Look at verse 22. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own scripts, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own households using his native tongue. Now, that's got everything back in order, hasn't it? King Xerxes thinks. Husbands ruling over their wives, and me ruling over everything. But we're supposed to look at this and think, it's ridiculous. I mean, just on a practical level, like how, can you maintain, how can you manage a, a law like that? But it's, it's completely, it's over the top. Deliberately say, it is supposed to look ridiculous. This is a king who is desperately trying to grasp hold of power, trying to keep control, and quite frankly, it's just making him, as we read back now, look like a bit of an idiot. But that's what we're supposed to think. Here's a power-crazed king. We're supposed to see it's all a bit ridiculous, a bit over the top. He's almost a bit of a comedy character uh, at this point. Because no one can control like that. It's not right for a human to control like that. Now, at this point, I just want to take a, a pause for a moment uh, and just uh, try to deal with a question that may be coming up in, in people's minds. If it's not coming to your mind, I'm about to put it in your mind. So, uh, apologies. Um, but uh, as you read something like this, uh, and uh, husbands uh, over wives and that kind of thing, uh, one of the questions that um, I think many people come back with is, well, what, how does that fit in with kind of New Testament passages of husbands uh, and wives and wives submitting to husbands? So if you read what some people think of a passage like Ephesians 5, you would see uh, there's no difference. But I want us to see that there is a world of difference between those two things. It's kind of the difference between light uh, and dark. See, King Xerxes is issuing a law that basically makes women slaves to their husbands. He expected Queen Vashti to do everything that he said. 
It's his way of, of having power uh, over her. And he makes that true for all the marriages in the Persian Empire. It's, it's a demanded respect. Wife, you will respect me. Uh, it's inequality, uh, and it's not loving. Ephesians 5, on the other hand, talks about an earned respect. Uh, a wife who willingly submits to her husband because a husband uh, is loving in the same a sacrificial, unconditional way that Christ loves the church. And so it's easy for that kind of submission to happen because the wife will want to submit to a husband who is putting all her needs before his own. One scholar puts it like this. I believe in a wife submitting to a husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know that when I am worthy of submission, my wife submits. And when I'm unworthy of it, she does not. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy. I I know this may raise lots of uh, questions about what it means for wives to submit uh, to husbands in terms of the New Testament. I'm not going to go into all that. We don't have time to do all that. Uh, Happy to chat afterwards if you want to. But can you see, the most important thing is, the vast difference between what's happening in Esther 1 and what the New Testament talks about. One, uh, in Esther 1, is inequality, it's uh, unloving, it's controlling. Uh, In Ephesians 5 and passages like that, it's loving, it's sacrificial, uh, it's it's equal, it's both parties submitting to Christ. They are massively uh, different. Now, we don't have time to talk any more on that, so let's get back to uh, Esther 1 and this ridiculous new law. And as we start the book of uh, of Esther, maybe you wonder, why on earth uh, does it start with this power-crazed king? Why not tell us what the Jews are up to in exile? Why not introduce us to our heroine who's going to come later? But I think it's deliberate uh, and clever by the author to do it this way. He wants us to see a king who is power-crazed, who is lavishly displaying his wealth, who's attempted to keep control, and ask the same question that we might ask on a Wednesday afternoon in the office. Where is God in that? See, we need the rest of the story to see how these uh, chain of events Uh, unfold and show God protecting and preserving his people. But there's already a clue here, even in this first chapter, that that's what's happening. The end of verse 19 says, Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Someone else who is better. Now the the ironic thing is, is that the way the noblemen are thinking at this point, they're thinking someone better in terms of perhaps beauty, as we'll see next week, or someone who could be controlled and like Vashti. But God has other plans. He's going to send someone better. Someone who will do something greater than even the great king Xerxes. See, through all these morally questionable decisions, through these ridiculous displays of power and trying to keep control, through ridiculous laws, foreign rulers, God has set about a plan 
to bring a new queen. One who will work for his people. One who will be uh, preserve and protect his people. One who will be the center of a chain of events that will show even the most powerful king of the most powerful empire isn't really in control. Where is God? Well, he's there. In the background, controlling events to protect and preserve his people. The silent sovereignty of God's. You know, it may have seen, if you were there, that the King Xerxes was the most powerful person in total control. It seemed now that uh, some world leader is the most powerful person. Some uh, com- huge company CEO controls so much of what's going on. The writer wants us to see, to look at those people and say they're not fully in control. In fact, the more they try to control things, the more ridiculous they look. Throughout history, no matter how powerful a person has become, there's always someone more powerful, more in control, working in the backgrounds. His his name may not be mentioned, but that doesn't mean he's not there. God is always working to preserve and protect his people. He did it through Esther. He did it to... uh, as we'll see as we go through, preserve a line of his people so that from his people, Jesus could come. And if we want to see the ultimate example of him preserving and protecting his people, then we look at Jesus and all that he did. But he didn't just stop with Jesus, it carries on. It carries on to, the very, to this very day in our lives. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The silent sovereignty of God. God is there working in the background. That means you, if you're a Christian here today, are glorified. It may not seem obvious to us. I'm sure it didn't seem obvious to Esther as she uh, heard the news of what Queen Vashti had done. But as she was able to look back in hindsight, as we're able to look back in hindsight over our lives, there is God's sovereignty working again and again and again. So you don't forget that between all the great uh, mighty acts of power uh, that God displays, all the great speeches that he gives in the Bible, there are many years of normality, many years of seemingly insignificant events like we have here in Esther 1. But God is no less in control of those He's no less in control of the normality of your lives if you go back to work or study tomorrow. As you sit at home drinking a coffee, he is in control. It may not seem like he's doing much. It may not be that we don't feel like we can hear his voice. It may seem that uh, uh, some human has all the power or control at the moment. But it's not the case. 
God is there working in the background to preserve and protect you. That's where he is Monday to Sunday. Working for his people. Silently sovereign. So that we are glorified. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this example of Esther where we can look back in hindsight and see how you are sovereign, how you can control all things to preserve and protect your people. And we thank you that's also true in our lives. And so as we look at Esther, as we think back over uh, the almost comical figure of King Xerxes in this chapter, Lord, help us to be confident and comforted knowing that you are the one who's in control. That you are the one who glorifies us. Amen.